Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Paul Kicks about his new book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Paul is an author and writer whose writings have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, GQ, and ESPN The Magazine, among other publications. He serves as a deputy editor at ESPN.com. He also teaches a digital course, The Storytelling You, which helps aspiring writers with their writing and storytelling projects. Paul Kicks, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell us something about yourself. How did you get to be the writer that you are? (laughs) Maybe the easiest and most concise way to answer that is to say that I was lucky I knew from an early age that I wanted to do something with respect to communication. I thought it was going to be in broadcast news, and it was only through taking a couple of television internships that I realized, wow, the thing that I loved the most in those internships was the ability to write a script or write some sort of commentary. And that led me to student newspapers, which led me to student magazines, which led me all these decades later to books, which is really the thing I'm like, This is the thing I should have been doing the entire time. And it makes sense in hindsight because I've always been an avid reader, and only now do I realize, oh, that was actually serving a purpose the entire time. Though interestingly, one of your books and one of your CQ stories both got made into movies, right? They both Yeah, so, yeah, I want to – just want to like clarify what that is. So I did a story for GQ that became a movie called The Accidental Getaway Driver, the same name as the story in GQ – And that debuted at the Sundance Film Festival this past January, where it won the Best Director Prize. My first book, The Saboteur, a true story of French French resistance uh, during the occupation in World War II, uh, that story was optioned by Steven Spielberg, and it still is out there. It's sort of like the, the way that Hollywood works. It's like... It hasn't been made. The rights have actually reverted to me. It's a sort of classic Hollywood story of everything coming together, and then, blah, everything fell apart. Well, hopefully after the writer's strike, it'll come back together. One hopes, right? Or maybe this one. Who knows? You never know. Exactly. So what led you to write this book? Two things. First, I'm white. My wife, Sonia, is black. Uh, We have three kids. Uh, a daughter who's now 13, and twin boys who are now 12. When the twins were born, not too long after that, in 2011 and 2012, I thought that, well, now that I'm the head of this interracial household, uh, I need to really acquaint myself with the black canon in ways that I hadn't before. I'd read, you know, like Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, but I didn't know a ton about the history aspect of it. So I really just went way down a rabbit hole of, the civil rights movement and one photo in particular and one movement in particular captivated me the way that nothing else did, which was the Birmingham campaign in 1963. And Michael, it was, it was interesting because it was something that I think you and I both, we have this understanding of like what that is. We've seen the grainy images on PBS documentaries of the fire hosed kids, but it was really this sense that, Oh my gosh, from, 1863 to 1963, there had been numerous efforts to pass something like civil rights legislation, and each of them had failed. So a hundred years of lynching and inequality and 
not much more like slave sort of wages. Like it's just it was terrible for a hundred years. And then after that, 1963, everything changes. And so I began to see the Birmingham campaign as almost an origin story of America, because I don't think it's 1776, because, of course, women and pretty much anybody but a waspy white man had no real say in America. And I don't think it's 1863 either, because even though there was the Emancipation Proclamation, there wasn't anything like equality. I think America finally began to reckon with treating everyone fully equally in 1963. And it's blacks. I mean, after that movement, you see the rise of uh, of the women's movement. You see the rise a generation later of the gay rights movement. 1963, I saw as our origin story. However, that was nothing more than sort of like, to me, a curiosity of the of the publishing cycle and sort of of history that nobody had dealt with 1963 in a manner that I was most captivated by. Like what exactly happened across those 10 weeks? Every single civil rights book talked about it, but it did so in a sort of fleeting manner. I didn't do anything with that for, hmm, what did I say, 2011, 2012, I started to really read those books. So eight years pass. In the spring and summer of 2020, George Floyd dies. And can I tell, like, a brief story about that? Uh, Sure. Okay. So my wife, Sonia, grows up in Fifth Ward, which is the adjacent and sort of equally hard-up neighborhood to where George Floyd grew up in Houston, uh, which is Third Ward. So Sonia's in Fifth Ward, Houston. George grows up in Third Ward. Sonia and George were the same age, 46, when George was murdered. Sonia had uh, cousins who went to Yates High. Uh, where where George went. In fact, Sonia's cousin Derek knew George back then, watched him as the tight end on the Yates High football team that, that made it to the state championship game in 1992. So I say all that because George Floyd's murder for my wife Sonia and my mother-in-law Connie, who had moved in with us from Houston after her retirement, George Floyd's murder felt almost personal in my house. So that meant that was the first time that our then 11-year-old daughter and twin 9-year-old boys, that was the first time that we allowed them to watch the footage of a black man being killed by law enforcement officials whose death was captured by body cam footage or cell phone cameras. And so we all sat on the couch on CNN and we watched we watched Officer Chauvin like almost playfully grind his knee into the back of George's neck over and over. And my my twin boys had a really hard time with that. And they asked a lot of questions about it. And we tried our best to, to say that, you know, you could kind of do anything, go anywhere you wanted in this life. But the reality was a lot of that concern was almost this question of identity. This was the first time that they understood that this was the black experience as well. And so what they began to do over the latter half of 2020 is become almost despondent. And at one point, Kenosha, Wisconsin cops, there's there's another incident that spring, summer, into the late fall of 2020. You may remember this, Kenosha, Wisconsin cops, had, had a disagreement with a man named Jacob Blake. And as Blake is walking away from the cops, they shoot him seven times in the back while Blake's three kids scream from the back of his car. 
And our kids saw that footage, too. And my son Walker was like, why do they keep trying to kill us? He's screaming this, and he's running from the room in tears. And then my other twin son, Marshall, he ran after him in tears as well. So I say that because it was really hard, yes, but it was also Sonny and I were trying to figure out what can we do. And what we realized we could do was kind of take the story of 1963, which I think is, again, the origin story of America. I think it's the greatest story America can ever tell about itself. And we can make that a family project of sorts, turn a book project into a family project. And so that's why the book is dedicated to my three kids, because the courage, the kindness, the ingenuity, and above all, the perseverance that it took for those deputies within the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and for Martin Luther King Jr. himself in the spring of 1963, what it took for them to succeed against the longest of long odds. It was not just a great story, but for me, it was it was a guide for how any of us could live. And I wanted my kids to take away those sort of universal truths of what happened that spring. And in so doing, hopefully inspire others who, really any of us, any American who's been, oh God, cynical the last few years, doubting him or herself the last few years, the pandemic, the reckoning that has been of murders like George Floyd's, the pandemic, it's done a number on a lot of us. And what I I wanted to do is basically write a book that was, yes, incredibly painful to read at times, but ultimately a book that was hopeful, a book that said we can persevere. And so that's why why I wrote you, you know, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. It's great. Let's start our conversation in January 1963 with a secret meeting held at the Dorchester Academy in Midway, Georgia. What was that about? That was where they were going to discuss the most dangerous idea of the civil rights movement. Should we proceed in Birmingham? I think what's going to be important for your audience to understand is the SELC was broke. They had like no Southern Christian Christian Leadership Conference. So that's, that's King's organization. And this book does not primarily focus on King. I mean, he is, yes, he's a character, but he really shares the billing with three deputies. And we can get to those three deputies in a minute. We will. But basically, they're broke. Why are they broke? Because every single campaign they had waged since the Montgomery bus boycott about seven years prior, every one of them had failed. And now some people in your audience may say, well, wait, the Montgomery bus boycott resulted in a Supreme Court action ruling in favor of King and, and the activists. That's true. By 1963, however, the intransigence of the, of the Klan and the sort of racist hatred within Alabama state government and local government meant that black people in Montgomery had, had to return to the back of the bus. And one journalist at the time said it was as if it was 1943 and not 1963 in Montgomery. So they haven't won. Other civil rights groups are openly sneering at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Civil rights groups like John Lewis, the one that John Lewis led, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. There were members within that organization who called King a phony, who called King DeLaud, which was a sort of euphemistic play off how pompous he was in his dress and his speech. And in addition to that, the Northern and Southern press were kind of openly deriding King and the SCLC for being ineffective. 
They had just lost a massive campaign the year prior in Albany, Georgia. So when they head to the Dorchester Academy in January of 1963, they want to go to Birmingham primarily because they're desperate. They see Birmingham as their last attempt to save their organization. But they knew that if they tried, they would be trying to effectively either break segregation in the most racist and violent city in America or be broken by it. And if I could just add one thing, just as a bit of a context here before we go on, you know, people think of the Jim Crow South as terrible. Birmingham was uniquely terrible in 1963. This is why it was the most dangerous idea in the civil rights movement. Birmingham was less a city than like a site of domestic terror. It was known as Bombingham for all of the black-owned businesses and homes that were routinely dynamited and whose, whose crimes were, quote, never solved. It was overseen by Eugene Bull Connor, who was a public safety commissioner and outright racist with, like, barely cloaked ties to the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan castrated black men in Birmingham. The police raped black women in their patrol cars. CBS's Edward R. Murrow, prior to King and the SCLC's involvement in Birmingham, he goes down to Birmingham to do some reporting for CBS, and he turns to his producer at one point and he says, I have not seen any place like this since Nazi Germany. So that was Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, and that was why going there was the most dangerous idea for King and the rest, because they might literally die. They thought there was a chance they would. If they don't die, there's a chance that if they fail, the SELC will be no more. There's another chance that if they fail, the civil rights movement as a whole may die. It was the biggest gamble of every activist's career in life. And they thought they had to do it. They had to go to Birmingham. In addition to the data that you support your proposition that Birmingham was the most dangerous place. It was also true that unions tried very hard to organize in Birmingham, well-financed unions, nothing. nothing U.S. District Court, U.S. District Courts issued orders to integrate parks, never integrated. Never. Brown versus the Board of Education didn't integrate the schools. Nope. They just didn't care. They didn't care. And the union thing is interesting because as far back as the 1930s, when Bull Connor comes into power in Birmingham, it's like some sort of sort of dictatorship. You hear reports from union members where other union members, and this is the language they use, are, quote, disappeared. They'll go into the jail and they're just never heard from or seen from again. It wasn't just, a, it was overwhelmingly a racist city, yes but it was really against any sort of order that would try to move Birmingham beyond its antebellum present. So they arrive at the Dorchester, and Wyatt Walker introduces a plan he calls Project X. So tell us, who is Wyatt Walker and what was Project X? So Wyatt Walker is one of those three deputies uh, within the Southern Christian Leadership Conference who is incredibly influential that spring, even more so than King. Wyatt Walker is the executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He is effectively King's number two. And really, as executive director, he has oversight into how every plan ends up carrying itself out, 
how every campaign ends up working for the SCLC. And what he figured out was, well, we are going, he, he wrote this memo whose basic point is we have failed in the past. We are going to go to the very site of domestic terror and anger every terrible person there in the hope that we will suffer. And because we will suffer, I will help to bring the press down, the northern press. So if a reporter from the New York Times is scribbling notes or a camera crew from Walter Cronkite's broadcast is filming footage of us suffering, what we're really doing is returning our bodies into metaphors of the black experience across the last 300 or so years. And if we do that consistently enough, often enough, day after day, eventually it will reach a much broader audience. It will reach all of America. But what they really wanted and what Wyatt Walker really wanted, and this is this true of the whole of the SCLC that spring, what they really wanted was to reach an audience of two, Jack and Bobby Kennedy at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Because if they could get to the Kennedy brothers and get them to see the ways in which they were being treated in Birmingham, perhaps, perhaps at last, the Kennedy brothers would do the thing they had thus far sworn they would never do, which was sponsor civil rights legislation and at last make America fully equal. And we'll turn to the Kennedys in a little while in, in more depth. But so Project X has four stages to it. Yeah. You tell us each of those stages, if you remember them, and and then we'll see how it plays out. Okay. So the way to describe this is to say that, to just backtrack just for a second. So part of the reason they had failed in the past is because they had tried to basically usurp city governments. They tried to get city governments to do the bidding that the SCLC wanted. That didn't work. So the first thing that Wyatt Walker realized was, well, instead of targeting city halls to change, let us target instead the economic core of Birmingham. Because if we can protest in the business district, perhaps then we can harm those business owners financially enough where they will in turn pressure the Birmingham government to act. So what that meant was they were going to stage uh, mass meetings by night. This is the first part. So that they could then stage sit-ins by day at diners and, and, and whatnot throughout Birmingham. Now, these sit-ins would very likely attract media attention, which is what they wanted, and it would very likely lead to people being in prison. That's great. That's also what Wyatt Walker wanted, because the more people that could be imprisoned, well, eventually you can fill the jail. So we'll get to, the, we'll get to that in just a second. The second aspect of this was they wanted to stage a basically an economic boycott of the whole of Birmingham's business district. Black people accounted for about 25% of Birmingham's downtown business at that time. And the profit margins for these business owners, these white business owners, were small enough where basically if black people didn't shop there, the white businesses wouldn't survive there. And so Wyatt Walker's second point was, well, let's, let's boycott everything economically. The third was if we do this often enough, we're going to be able to get ourselves in jail. And if we can get enough people in jail, eventually we will fill the jails. This is good. This is actually the optics of success. All these hundreds, if not thousands of volunteers who are filling every jail in Birmingham. Once we fill all the jails in Birmingham, then we can move to the fourth part. Eventually, Bull Connor is going to have no choice but to either accede to our wishes because he has nowhere else to put any new protesters because all the jails are filled, or 
he's going to lash out in the way that he's always lashed out across his life. And Wyatt Walker's bet was that he would choose the latter. And if Bull Connor chose the latter, well, that's great because, remember, all of these national press members are going to be there. So then it comes back to this idea that we discussed just a minute ago about suffering and turning your, bo- your bodies into a metaphor of the black experience, about trying to get the legislation passed. It was this brilliant sort of synopsis and a bit of strategy that King, when he read it, was just floored by. Everybody was at the Dorchester Academy. That, you know, the accounts at that time, this is kind of remarkable because most, most any organization, somebody will present something and they'll debate it. According to numerous accounts, the first day that Wyatt Walker presents his Project X, this four-stage escalation, uh, nobody has anything to say about it. They're just kind of amazed by it. There's no discussion of it whatsoever. And so that's, that's been part why King said that Wyatt Walker had one of the keenest minds in the movement. He was an incredibly intelligent man. Uh, and I would argue, and we can get to this later if you want, in some ways a, an immoral one for what happened across that spring. Mm. And we will talk about that. But my recollection from the book is that you're absolutely correct that everyone sort of fell in love with this plan, and King says a victory there will set forces in motion to change the entire course of the drive for freedom and justice. So everyone is on board, except for James Bevel. <laughs> except for James Bevel. I'm glad you said that because, like, I wanted to figure out how we could introduce the other two characters of this book. James Bevel is really another central character of this book. James Bevel, most of these guys are sort of, Civil rights movement men, they wear the conservative suits, right? They're all middle-aged. Um, they all came of age in the 1950s. James Bevel is very much a young guy. He's in his mid-20s. I think he's 20. Actually, I think he's 27 that uh, spring. And he does not wear the movement man suit, conservative suit. He wears country bibs because country bibs bore no heirs in his native Mississippi. And James Bevel was somebody that, that even King said fascinated and frightened me because um, <laughs> he speaks in these absolutes. And basically, James Bevel looks at Wyatt Walker's plan, a younger guy, and he's just basically like, you know what? I think this entire plan is wrong because you basically can't have a movement succeed and some sort of hierarchical top-down structure. Wyatt Walker's memo was eight pages, eight typed pages. And he's like, the way that movements succeed, because he'd had success with SNCC, John Lewis's organization, before he joined the SCLC, the way that movements succeed is organically. You must relate to people. You must be there with them. You must move there with them. Um, Only when they see you struggling alongside them will they perhaps think to do the same. You cannot order people to do what you want. And this was his main point of contention with Wyatt Walker. And if I could just add one more beat, we often now think of either the civil rights campaign as being preordained or particularly for those guys in the SCLC, we think of all of them having this almost angelic hue because they're all pastors, so they must all get along. Dude, that was not the case at all. James Bevel and Wyatt Walker openly despised each other. And what's phenomenal about that relationship is that Wyatt Walker, as executive director, is the guy who sort of puts forth the plan. James Bevel 
and this is a somewhat redundant title. It's re, he was the director of direct action, but it basically meant that he was the operations lead. James Bevel was the one who manifested the vision that Wyatt Walker put out. And so already, right away, before Birmingham has even started, the two guys that have to get along don't want to get along at all because they don't see eye to eye on how exactly they'll win in Birmingham. And that's just one of many sort of interpersonal struggles, class struggles within the SCLC. These people were deeply human, deeply flawed men and women. And what the book tries to do is to reveal them in all of their flawed humanity. And one of Bevel's complaints was that they were, by this plan, essentially asking the black residents of Birmingham to put their body in harm's way in a city known for extreme brutality. And also, Ralph Abernathy... Martin Luther King, they were outsiders. They were Atlantans. They yeah. would do this little action, or not little, they would do this action, then then return home. Bevel said, as you said, it has to be organic. And there was nobody there from Birmingham except for Fred Shuttlesworth. So yeah. tell us who he is, because he's a critical uh, actor in, in this play. And then, and then I want to get to the funding of Project X and how that came to pass, because that's sure. a great story. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I'll say, just as an overview, Fred Shuttlesworth is the bravest American I've ever encountered. Fred Shuttlesworth, over the course of the last few years, has become something almost like a personal hero of mine. So who was Fred Shuttlesworth? Fred Shuttlesworth was a Birmingham pastor who, in the years before the SELC ever considered coming to Birmingham, staged numerous campaigns to try to liberate his fellow black congregants within his church or really the whole of black Birmingham. How did that play out? Well, his home was bombed. He rose from the smoky ruins, and the very next day he tried to integrate the bus lines anyway. Uh, This is in 1955. Two years later, in 1957, his daughter's, were of high school age. He tries to enroll them in the all-white Phillips High School. He tells Bull Connor, I'm going to be coming to integrate the high school myself. He is met by 10 or 12 members of the Klan and cops with brickbats and bats and chains, and he nearly dies that day. He is rushed to the hospital. In front of his children. In front of his children, he nearly dies. His wife, Ruby, is stabbed in the back. He barely escapes. He was rushed to the hospital. That night, he realized that he had a civil rights movement. Uh, He had his own civil rights uh, group within Birmingham, and he realized that night he had a meeting. So he checked himself out of the hospital to go to the meeting with and I'm not joking, almost all of the skin scraped off of his face. That's who Fred Shuttlesworth was. I, look, I, I can't imagine the bravery it took, but I will say that he has inspired me in numerous ways over the last few years. And I wish, if nothing else, that people who read this book will come to understand who Fred Shuttlesworth 
was and how he needs to be seen in the sort of light that King is. He plays such a huge role in 1963, and he is largely forgotten to America today. Although the Birmingham airport is named after Fred. You want to know know what's fascinating, though? So I go there, and this is completely an informal, like, poll, right? But, like, I'm there. They have this this, uh, sort of gallery of Fred and, and all of his activism across 10 or 12 years in Birmingham. And I'm just sort of saying, hey, do you know who this guy is? Do you know who this guy is? 90% 90% of the people that I interviewed at the airport like, had no idea who he was. Yeah, no right. idea. It's just the Shuttlesworth Birmingham Airport. Anyway, so to continue our story, because it's a long story, and I want to try to keep moving, something sure. I, I fail at doing often, there is a problem which you identified, which is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is broke. Dead broke. And now they're planning on, on staging a multi-day mass demonstration how are they gonna fund this thing (laughs) prayer i mean honestly they don't have very good answers except they have they have i guess to extend the prayer metaphor they kind of have a guardian angel and he lives in new york and his name is harry belafonte and uh so they go to harry's apartment in in manhattan and harry has assembled all of these different people all of these like people from publishing uh ossie davis is there uh sydney poitier is there who's arguably the only name in hollywood that was bigger than harry at that time and he tells them he does something that's kind of different most of these most of these campaigns when rich new yorkers could donate to the cause it would be very much an ongoing cause right it'd be like hey we need your support to carry out this campaign and you know in Albany, Georgia, say, just use the year prior to what happened in 1962. So Harry has the idea, well, let's say that it's going to be a secret meeting and you'll have a chance to invest in an upcoming campaign. And so that just is like that changes the dynamic for almost every New Yorker there. So they, and, they become like early investors in the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so like but still like they have to sell it. Right. Because. King is flailing at this point. He's he's ridiculed by the New, New York Herald Tribune for the failure in Albany just months prior. So all these people gather, and we were just talking about Fred Shuttlesworth. Fred Shuttlesworth takes the stage that night, and Fred starts talking about his life, and he's kind of the headliner. And it's a lot of the things that you and I just discussed. He once stepped in front of a bus that was moving and refused to Im- integrate. Uh, I mean, it's just the stories from Fred's life are crazy. And he's relaying some of these stories of these New Yorkers. And at the end of it, somebody asks a question. We don't have exactly the question, but paraphrase. It's just basically like, how do you live? Like, how have you survived? How do you continue to do this day after day? And Fred said, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. And. Hence, hence the title of the book. Hence the title of the book. And it just wows the, wows the New Yorkers. And they're like, oh, my gosh, like we, want to, we want to donate to this cause because now it's, now it's romantic. It's like these guys go down there, they might die. They're trying, they suddenly see the stakes that, that everybody else within the movement sort of inherently understood. And so that night, you know, th- this huge gamble, they had no idea how they were going to finance it. 
they raised $475,000, which today I don't have a calculator right in front of me, but I think the math works out to something like $6 million today. In one night, it was the biggest haul the SCLC had ever received. And it was because of what, of what Harry Belafonte did to first gather all of these people and then, like, say, okay, let's, let's position this meeting a little bit differently. And it was this wild success as a result. Mm. You tell one quick anecdotal story, which is Harry Belafonte wants to rent an apartment in this building owned by the son of the dictator Trujillo, who yeah. won't rent to him. So what does Harry Belafonte do? Harry Belafonte gets pissed, and he's just basically like, okay, Raphael, if that's the way you want to play, because he's the son of, uh, of the former Dominican Republic dictator, I'm just going to buy the building outright. So he does. He buys the whole of 300 West End. The building is still there today, stately, sort of 13 stories. He buys the whole of it. He turns various. Uh, he turns it into a co-op. Lena Horne rents the penthouse. She and Harry sometimes have impromptu concerts either at his apartment, which, by the way, like Harry strips out the A unit from the B, and it becomes this massive space. It's like 7,200 feet in Manhattan. And, and it's like his performance space. It's his living space. They've got all this art. He and his, and his second wife. It's a, this amazing space. And that was the space in which, in which everybody gathered that night for, for that donation. But I love the story. Well, you won't rent to me? Fine. Yeah. I am now the owner of the building. I am now the owner we of the building. We don't need your services any longer. I just like, and Harry, like, just, to, just to stay a bit and beat more on this, Harry in 1957 or 9 outsold Elvis and Sinatra with his Calypso recording. Harry was one of arguably the most influential actors of the late 50s, early 1960s. And this is the thing that I love about Harry Belafonte, and I think a lot of people do too. He effectively gives up everything for the movement. Like, I don't know, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on any artist or musician today, but I just don't know of anybody that would give up the, their career in the prime of their lives for a cause that they believed in that deeply. Yeah. Harry Belafonte did it, though. Yeah, Dick Gregory comes in a close second. Dick, actually, Dick Gregory's great. and he's, he's Yes, that's right. That's true. And he actually plays a small role um, in Birmingham later that spring. Yeah. yeah, he comes down in marches. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're funded. We have a plan. Everyone's on board except for James Bevel, yeah. the yarmulke-wearing overalls um, kid. And, yeah, yeah. So they arrive. They check themselves into the hotel. And tell us how the first couple of days of this thing go. Terribly. Like, Wyatt Walker's grand plan for Birmingham is an absolute failure. It fails because, A, the black Birmingham pastors don't want to align with King. It's kind of what, Michael, what you were saying a moment ago about um, their outsiders from Atlanta. Birminghamians thought that their differences should be resolved internally. Secondly, that the day that they arrive, there's a, there's a mayoral uh, race that culminates in Albert Boutwell's win. Okay, so I'm just going to spend a second on this. But basically, Bull Connor runs against this former state senator and lieutenant governor named Albert Boutwell. And the idea is that Albert Boutwell is some sort of reformed guy. He talks a good game. Fred Shuttlesworth was one of the first to say he's just a dignified Bull Connor, and he was. But for many Birminghamians, they were like, well, he was talking about equality. Now you guys are coming in, and you're saying it doesn't matter what he says. We're going to protest anyway. 
And so that's why a lot of black Birminghamians got upset. They're like, you, the SCLC, are not allowing us to try to find the success on our terms. You're trying to dictate it to us. They found it to be very sort of patronizing. Uh, in addition to that, Bull Connor was a little bit wily. He figured out that if he didn't act the way he had been acting across the whole of his life, then the SELC basically has no way to win. And so he begins to arrest people, as I say in the book, with unctuous care. You know, he's trying to do his level best to make sure that nobody is harmed in any of these arrests. So all of the national media that Wyatt Walker and others helped to bring down, these, these national reporters are like, this is it? Like, they're just gently handcuffed and gently put into a paddy wagon? Like, why are we down here? So not just the first couple of days, but the first couple of weeks are failures. And Bull Connor learns this, I'll be clever, from the Albany, Georgia failure. Because in Albany, they did the exact same thing. There was no violence. There was cordial communications and arrests, and it withered on the vine, and it was a great failure and embarrassment. Connor speaks to the sheriff of Albany, and he says, look, Bull, you want to win, show them you're smarter than them by not resisting, letting them. Not giving into the temptation, right, of of, of using the violence that you want to use. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's There's a meeting with Bull and the Albany police chief, and. He says, this is how we won in Albany. You can do the same in Birmingham. And if you win if you win like this in Birmingham, you might actually defeat King forever. And that's why Bull is initially on board with this. So everything goes exactly opposite to the plan <laughs> that they have. And essentially, it proves Bevel's point that if it's not ground up, if it's not organic, it's not going to work. So it's failing, and it's failing colossally. So they start to pivot, right? They have a different idea of what they they might do. And maybe you could talk us through that, including the fact that Dr. King himself never marches. No, no. In this initial period. No. He's a passive participant. It's really his deputies, James Bevel, Wyatt Walker, Fred Shuttlesworth, who are trying to figure out, like, how can we succeed in Birmingham? and. James Bevel, being James Bevel, much younger than everybody else, he starts to just basically ask Birminghamians, why aren't you protesting? What's going on? And, yes, there's the fear of arrest. There's the fear of of torture. But he learned something kind of fascinating. Black Birminghams had known that for generations. They lived in Birmingham. They, They knew the threats. The main reason the adults weren't protesting, Bevel found, was because... If they would have protested, they would be fired. Over 50% of black Birmingham Birminghamians in 1963 were domestic workers in some capacity, and which meant that their bosses were white people, and oftentimes quite powerful white people. They would have no problem saying, you're fired. For the professional class, and back then it was largely teachers. There were some, very few, there were some black lawyers who were admitted to the Alabama bar. Same thing, same thing applied there, whether it was a partner at a firm or a district court judge or anybody that, that perhaps oversaw uh, anybody being considered for disbarment. Those were white people. And suddenly these, whether it's the school superintendent or, again, somebody who's a, who's a founding partner at a law firm, to, to say, okay, well, we want you to protest and risk 
your whole professional livelihood. Oh, and by the way, for this guy from Atlanta who's otherwise failing miserably at every campaign he's ever staged in Martin Luther King Jr., no, no black adult Birminghamian wanted to do that. So James Bevel said something that shocked everybody. If we can't get the adults to protest, there's one other group of people that we can get, and that's their kids. And that's where King is like, what? Their kids? You say, so what, their kids? But Bevel says, and they say to Bevel, no. Yeah. We, right? Yeah. The leadership of the SLC says to Bevel, no, you can't do that. But yeah. Bevel has different ideas. But one thing I want to get to before we get to this, the kids' campaign is, Dr. King has not shown his face on the streets yet. No. But he announces that he's going to march on Good Friday. Yes. So talk a little bit about the Good Friday march and what happens, because I want to get to the letter. Oh, okay. Uh, so he has not shown his face, what you were just saying a minute ago, he, he has not shown his face in any campaign. He has allowed others to do the protesting. He realizes at the same time that they are discussing whether or not they should have kids, he's thinking to himself, well, what if I do a protest? Will others fall behind me? And will they follow me into jail? And so he makes this announcement, the Holy Week, uh, and he says that I'm going to be marching on Good Friday, and I'm going to be making a march for freedom. And Ralph Abernathy even even says, he makes it like overtly biblical. He's like, just as Christ died for our sins 2,000 years ago, Martin Luther King and I are about to you know, lay it all on the line. Uh, and, and see if we can, you know, live. And which was not necessarily hyperbole because there was always this concern that they might die for protesting, they might die for going to, to jail. So he he decides he's going to do it. And this is, like, this is one of those brief interludes where I'm so glad, Michael, that this, that I, <laughs> it's going to sound bad, but, like, I'm so glad I did this book this way. Because I could really home in on every single day and the thoughts and characteristics of what was happening. So this week in particular, what basically happens is that King realizes, okay, I've said I'm going to go protest. Excuse me, I've said I'm going to march on Friday. This is on like a, the Wednesday. City of Birmingham issues this injunction, which basically says that anybody who protests going forward will not only risk six thousand, excuse me, uh, six months in jail but also risk a fine of $2,000, which was orders of magnitude more for what bail would have been at that point in time. So this really, now King is really in a tough spot because he's like, if I go to jail, the campaign may very well die while I'm in prison because I'm going to need to be there for six months. But if I don't go to jail, I will be ridiculed by the press to whom I've just said, I'm going to go protest, and this will be the end of the SCLC. We will be sneered at in, in, into extinction. If I go to jail, the bail for me and for everybody else who comes with me will wipe us out financially. We cannot succeed. If I do not go to jail, we will never be able to raise any money ever again because nobody will ever take us seriously because I can't even stick by my word. And so King has this moment of reflection. 
on Good Friday morning. So these are sort of the questions, the back and forth that he's raising on Monday, Thursday. And into Good Friday morning, the day of that he's supposed to be protesting, he still doesn't know what he's going to do. And in fact, his dad tells him, don't do it. Don't do it. Yes. And his father is somebody, there's a bit of back and forth history there, but like most fathers and sons, Martin Luther King Jr. was somebody who wanted to impress his dad. And by and large, there were times in his life where he did exactly what his dad said. And here was his father saying, I do not want you to protest. I do not want you to march. And so King goes off and he prays about it. And I won't, you know, I'll save some of that for the book itself and and the reading of it. But the upshot is that he comes to realize he should protest. And he says, I'm going to protest whether I'm doing it by myself. And this was the moment where others in the room that day said was the moment of King's true leadership. He says about it, looking back, that that Friday night was the longest, most frustrating and bewildering hours I have lived. Yeah, yeah. And and that's because even though he has committed himself in body to going out and protesting and now being arrested and now being thrown into Birmingham jail, he does not know. How long am I going to be here? If I'm here for the next six months, there's no way this movement can survive. How can I get everybody out? What's happening to everybody else who's imprisoned alongside? He's in solitary. He's in solitary confinement. He has no way to communicate with anybody. And then on the outside, he's like, who's going to lead this movement in my absence? There was some discussion of who would do it. But there wasn't any clear sense of what would happen in the coming days for coming days, weeks or months for him being behind bars. That's why he said it was the darkest, most harrowing hours of my life. He felt in some sense like he's talked about like it was almost like a personal hell that he was in that night. So he's in jail. Sort of short circuit a little bit, but it's so worth reading this book because there's so much that we are only touching topic sentence on. He's in jail. Belafonte raises more money for bail. A lawyer who has worked with the SCLC, Clarence B. Jones, shows up, and he brings with him newspapers. And in the newspapers, there's an op-ed written by white Christian and Jewish leaders urging them to end the demonstrations. They write in this piece that this demonstration, which should end, is being led by outsiders and it is likely to incite hatred and violence. Yeah. So Clarence B. Jones shows up with that newspaper, with that piece, and gives it to King, and tell us the aftermath of that when King reads that op-ed. So Jones is like, we got to talk about last night. Like, we had a terrible fundraiser. or we, You know, we're we're running out of cash already. We got to talk about our strategy, our legal strategy. And King is just fixated on this op-ed because he sees, first he's outraged. He's like, the white clergy members, be they Christian or Jewish, are basically saying, for you coming down here, you are inciting the hatred of Bull Connor and making it difficult for us to lead our lives. And he's like, so he's, King's like, wait, what? Like, are you suggesting that we should leave 
so that the status quo can remain and that we are at fault and not Bull Connor. So he's like, I have to I have to respond to this. This is such a flawed argument, and it is one that I just feel like I must respond to. And because he was responding to other clergy, what he does is not a sermon that's based for the everyday congregant that he may encounter at Ebenezer Baptist back in Atlanta. He can, in this speech or presentation or letter, as it's ultimately known, he can gear it toward an audience much like himself. He can talk about philosophy, world history. He can make numerous references to the Judeo-Christian tradition because the people who are meant to read this are familiar with these texts as well. I say this because in that jail cell, and I say this in the book, in that jail cell, Martin Luther King Jr. was unbound. You could argue that like for one of the first times intellectually, he was unbound, and he could say whatever he wanted. And what he wrote became the most memorable, most moving letter perhaps ever published. Letter from Birmingham Jail. A letter from Birmingham Jail. Was that response to this op-ed, and again, we don't want to have spoilers, but he's got really no paper. He's got a pencil, and he's writing on toilet paper and the margins of newspapers as he's pouring out his thoughts uh, in what becomes letter um, from Birmingham Jail. Yeah, and, and it's... And I don't want to spoil it either because I, I really do want the readers to realize that there's so much here that's happening that I found deeply fascinating. And that section of the book was perhaps the part where I personally was most fascinated with King. Because what happens behind the scenes of that letter, that letter is really a reflection of the intellectual trek that King goes on across 15 years to arrive at the point of writing in this solitary cell with this nubby nub of a pencil. And you see what he used to believe about himself, about theology, about God, about power, and you see what he ultimately believes about all of those things. And I wanted in that book to really show that intellectual trek that King goes along because it includes not just theologians, but Gandhi, Leo Tolstoy, Napoleon. I mean, there's a lot going. I wanted to show how basically an entire idea, an entire sort of way of living can come into being. And it's only through what he thought and experienced across 15 years. So in some sense, that chapter for me was my way to show who Martin Luther King really was. Yeah. as a man, and who he had been to arrive at this point in Birmingham. So we were a little ahead of that story. I'm going to bring us back. King is in jail. He's writing a letter from Birmingham jail. James Bevel says to himself, he's left. Bevel's left Birmingham. He said, you know, if King's not going to put his feet on the ground and I've still got Wyatt Walker and his top-down plan, I'm out of here. He and his wife leave, and they go back, and they do a registration drive, voter registration drive in their native Mississippi. And right. the understanding is the understanding is that he left basically saying, you know, when you start to live out your rhetoric, let me know, right. because otherwise I'm going to be back in Mississippi. And so this was that moment. Yeah. King going, so he, Kim going to jail was that moment for Bevel. Yeah. So Bevel returns, and we talked about how he says, I've got an idea. 
The parents can't protest because they're going to be fired. They don't want to be beaten as brutally as Bull Connor is going to beat them. And so I am going to organically, my his word, yeah. uh, get a whole new group of protesters, and that's the kids. And we talked about how the SCLC leadership were morally outraged by this. Bevel says, fine, you can be morally outraged all you want, but he goes about organizing the kids. So yeah. talk a little bit about his organizing of the kids, how he does it, and the great ally he finds in Chile, the Playboy Stewart. <laughs> so everybody in the SELC was against Bevel doing this, as you said. But James Bevel was known within the SELC as the prophet. He was somebody who spoke in absolutes. He would say things like, he was 27, but he'd say things like, thus saith the Lord, saith James Bevel. So he would use this sort of Old Testament language. He thought himself he was half Jewish. Uh, uh, so he's, he's this very idiosyncratic sort of guy. I say all that because he wasn't going to listen to any other member saying you can't do this. He was going to do it on his own. So he starts to basically gather these kids at a movement-friendly church in Birmingham. And he just says, look, your parents can't protest, but you can do something this spring that will help them, that will help their grandparents, and, by the way, will help you throughout your life and your kids and your grandchildren. You can change Birmingham once and for all if you just listen to what I have to say about being a nonviolent protester. And the kids were floored. Like, he had a way with words. He was so charismatic. And it's at first a few handful, then it's dozens, then it's hundreds. One of my favorite anecdotes, um, I still get goosebumps when I think about it. So at a certain point, in these protests, he's just basically telling the kids, like, hey, you kids are getting white schools discards, be it football equipment or books, right? These kids don't know that because their parents are trying to basically shelter them from all of the hatred that is living in Birmingham. So their eyes are being woken up to this sort of wide and cruel world. But in addition to that, he starts to actually show them the actual lines of segregation in Birmingham. He shows them where the actual line between white Birmingham and black Birmingham is. Some of those kids didn't know that. Because, again, they had been so sheltered in their own neighborhoods. And then he takes them one day to, he takes them one day to a cemetery. And he says, he has them gather all around. And he's like, in 40 years, you're going to be here. Now, what are you going to do while you're still alive? And it just attracts more and more kids. But he needs, he doesn't need hundreds. He needs thousands of kids. So, to your point, he finds this DJ. His name is Shelly the Playboy Stewart, and he spun records at an A&M station that played Top 40. The kids loved him because he said goofy phrases back then like great googly moogly and all this stuff. And white and black kids listened to him. So he was a really popular DJ in town. And Bevel and others went to him and went to Stewart, and they basically said, look, we want to partner with you, and we want to figure out a way to try to, you know, advertise what we're doing, but we want to do it in a stealth manner. So they created all these code words, and I'll, and I'll let the book speak for what exactly those code words were and how they played out, but basically here was, here was Bevel's and the SELC's reasoning. A clandestine campaign is a very attractive one to kids. And so if you tell these kids in afternoon or evening sessions with Bevel, if you listen to the radio, if you listen to Shelley the Playboy Stewart, tomorrow at like 3 p.m., and if you hear him say 
you know, X phrase, it really means Y. And the, and the kids were like, really? And so they listen the next day. And it's not just the kids they've told. Now Bevel knows that that secret's going to spread well beyond him. So it spreads well beyond Birmingham. And eventually, you know, Shelley's like, look, come to, he's basically through code words saying, come to this, come to this uh, nonviolent training that Bevel's going to do through code words on the radio. And they were thinking they were just going to get kids in Birmingham. That was not the case. They got kids from, like, the surrounding suburbs and then the surrounding rural outposts outside of Birmingham. Just thousands of kids. And they had to move. He had to, Bevel had to go from, like, recruiting kids to recruiting other members of the SCLC just to help him train. That's how there were thousands of kids that wanted to take part in Bevel's training to figure out how to actually be a nonviolent protester. And all the while, King and all the rest, all the uh, they're like, we are. There's no way, in Bull Connor's Birmingham, we're going to allow these kids to do this. Well, again, without having a, a complete spoiler, the kids go out day by day in two by two groups of fifty, yeah. and kneel down and pray and are arrested. Connor is still more or less holding true to the advice he got to let them be. Uh, you know, sort of peacefully arrested, if you will, and then he reaches his breaking point. The jails are full now. Yeah. yeah. And so, so tell us about Connor and the firefighters of, of Birmingham, and then I want to turn to the Kennedys and what this precipitated. Okay. So at this point, it's early May, and – James Bevel was right. You foster a campaign from the bottom up. So he got all the kids. But in some sense, Wyatt Walker was right. Wyatt Walker was saying, well, if we can fill the jails, then Bull Connor will be left with no choice. And he'll either, again, accede to our wishes or he'll become violent. And he'll try to make sure that nobody else is arrested. And so on May 2nd and May 3rd, these were known as D-Day and Double D-Day within the Civil Rights Movement and within the SCLC. And May 3rd, 1963, was known as Double D-Day for a very good reason, because this is where we were talking earlier in the conversation about the grainy image of fire-hosed kids. This is where that comes into play. And I guess what I'll say, because that chapter, Michael, was one of, honestly, the hardest ones I've ever had to write. Because what happened that day was so much worse than any depiction that's ever been seen in a documentary film. We think it's just like this water hitting them. I want to just try for your audience to try to contextualize what this meant. That water was sometimes, it would have to be held by three or four firefighters. It was sometimes mounted on massive metal tripods as if the force that would come out carried the force of like a cannon. That water could knock brick loose from mortar it could strip the bark off of trees at more than 100 feet and that water hit those kids that day at often less than 30 feet it disintegrated clothes right off of the kids it backflipped kids it cartwheeled kids it left them screaming in pain one uh memoir that i read a 14 year old girl named carolyn McKenstry, she would see Almost as like it was, she was approaching some sort of front line. She would see these kids just being leveled by the water in front of her. 
and and she can hear the hiss of that water. And suddenly the kid's two spots ahead, now one spot, and now the water is on her, and it's hissing across her hairline, and it's pulling her hair out by the roots, and it's effectively scalping her. The violence that happened that day. There were wartime photographers and wartime reporters from national media and international news outlets that were there that day. And some of them would later say that nothing scared them, nothing frightened them, nothing left their thoughts like Double D-Day in Birmingham, Alabama. No war, nothing else. Double D-Day in Birmingham, Alabama. And I guess, like, I don't want to... I don't want to say too much more about it because that is really why the book is there. But I guess I just want to share that with your audience because forget the idea that this was in any way joyful, you know, or in any way like this was barbaric what happened that day. And we see these images over and over, and that barbarity is somehow lessened in our minds. It couldn't have been that bad was much, much, much worse than anything you could have ever imagined. And it wasn't just the water. It was the canine corps that was set loose. Six angry, very angry German shepherds who just tore people's clothes and, and skin and flesh off. It was, it was terrible what happened that day. How do the Kennedys react? <laughs> um, well, the New York Times runs an image of Walter Gadsden. Uh, it's the back image of the book. On the, on the front of the book, it's, it's the image that sits in the background. And the New York Times runs that image of Walter Gadsden being feasted upon by a German shepherd. And uh, the first time since they've taken office, they start to really consider civil rights. They start to really consider, my God, Jack says that th- that image made him sick. Bobby said what he saw on the news. He's like, you know, this is disgusting that this can happen in America. He blamed equal in equal parts King and uh, Bull Connor for what happened. But that was really the beginning of the Kennedy brothers beginning to reassess, did they have the right position on civil rights? And ultimately, again, there's incredibly interesting detail. The Kennedys send down the head of the Civil Rights Division of DOJ, Department of Justice, yep, and they work out a deal. Yep. And so tell us the parameters of the deal. So in essence, they're operating across two planes. Number one, the idea is let us desegregate the most segregated and racist and violent city in America. So they want a deal. And the deal is basically like some employment of some black people in some downtown stores It's the beginning of the sort of equality that King wants for Birmingham. But really, that deal, the SELC is hoping will lead to something else. Maybe other southern cities now will begin to take up the mantle of desegregation. And maybe, just maybe, the Kennedy brothers will do what they still don't really want to do, which is sponsor civil rights legislation. Jack... Bobby was his Bobby was such a political animal back then that he had Jack's reelection to consider. And the last thing that either Kennedy wanted, because it pulled terribly and the majority of America didn't want it, was a civil rights bill. 
It never happened. Again, numerous legislative efforts have failed across numerous generations for civil rights equality. And Jack thought, there's no way I can win on this in 64. And so Bobby's like, there's no way we're going to go there. Uh, but what happens uh, is King is right and the SCLC is right. They signed the deal in Birmingham. And then basically other cities in the South and then ultimately those in the North, in Chicago, in New York City, they begin to look at ways in which their cities remain segregated. Their cities remain racist. And it was at this point that Burke Marshall, as you were saying a moment ago, the head of the Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division, and Bobby Kennedy as Attorney General were like, well, we cannot find 50 different solutions for 50 different Birminghams. Now Bobby realizes I have to do the one thing I've never wanted to do. I have to try to find some solution for this because now this is politically untenable for Jack on the Democratic, liberal, slash progressive side, right? Now people are clamoring for some sort of something that would equal equality. And so now the Kennedys have to move towards a civil rights bill. That's what, that's what Bobby ultimately tries to position Jack to do. The Kennedy administration, you're right, realized in the aftermath of Double D-Day, the water hosing of these kids. And remember, these kids are now out of jail in a, in a prison camp. Essentially, yeah. they've, they've herded them over to the fairgrounds, essentially in the cattle cages, yeah. uh, without food, without shelter. The news media is churning away, and Kennedy says, doing nothing now is a liability. Yeah. And it leads to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and that famous speech of John Kennedy's on civil rights, which yeah. Dr. King said brought him to tears. Brought him to tears. And it's... If I could just stay for a beat more on the Kennedys, you know, a lot of times as a writer, what you're looking for is, I I call this a sort of path to enlightenment. And I think like almost all stories follow it. There There is a hero of the story who begins the story ignorant of some sort of truth of the human condition. And he ends the story not only understanding that truth, but embodying it through some sort of action. In that sense, the person who has, who changes the most across this book is not any of the activists who are far and away the heroes of the book and the protagonists, but really the person who changes the most is Bobby Kennedy because Bobby goes from somebody who's like, there is no way I will allow my brother to stand behind this to ultimately seeing that the children of Birmingham are just like my children. Their lives should have the same sort of equality as mine. And now I need to convince my brother of this. And it was Bobby's doing to convince his brother of that. It was nobody else in the Kennedy cabinet that wanted to get anywhere near civil rights. Bobby said he had to. You mentioned the speech. It happens on June 11th, 1963, and Kennedy sponsors, takes a primetime address to sponsor civil rights legislation. Guess how many members of the cabinet wanted Jack to give that address? One. Guess who it was? It was his brother, Bobby. Everybody else thought this is a terrible idea. It's already nuclear to just sponsor this bill. Now you want to basically advertise that you're going to sponsor it. And Bobby was like, hell yes, this is exactly what we're going to do, because this is the stance that we need to take. The about face of Bobby Kennedy in that spring and early summer of 1963, that enables Bobby to become the sort of liberal lion that he is now known for today. 
everything from 63 until his death in 68, everything stemmed from Birmingham in the same way that I argued at the beginning of this conversation that the whole of our lives today is in some way rooted in the origin story of 1963. The same was true for Bobby Kennedy. It, it's a terrific book. It's called You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Paul Kicks, I'm so grateful for you to having written this book. And I want to say to the listening audience, there is so much we didn't touch upon in this interview that if you don't go buy this book, you're making a huge mistake. Oh, thank you for such a glowing. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I poured everything I had in this book, Michael. So to see that sort of response, it means the world to me. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.